0: won't be able to see it, but just let me know afterwards if this was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, we're in the middle of a series on relationships. We've titled the series, uh, Hanging Out, Hooking Up, and Getting Hitched. So we're talking about marriage, sex, and dating. That being said, uh, we're five or six weeks in and I haven't talked about any of those things yet. Although I've talked about all kinds of other important things that will inform those relationships. And so we talked about family We've talked about uh, community recently, and tonight we talk about friendship. If uh, you're a new student here, or maybe if you just have a very concerned mother, then uh, perhaps you've heard recently this question. Are, are you making any friends? Anybody had that question lately from mom? And, um, yeah, it's a good question. And uh, it's interesting that verb we use regarding friendship, make friends. Friends. Maybe it would be easier if we could just create them. If it was just that easy. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, stir. This kind of thing happened in 80s movies all the time. You just create whatever you wanted. Um, Of course, it's not easy. And uh, a question your mom's probably never asked, but it's the question we're going to ask tonight, is, are, are you being a good friend? Did your mom ever ask you that question? Are you being a good friend? Are you being a good friend to your friends? That's the question that our text is going to pose to us, and I'm going to say it goes a long way as regards friendships, making friendships, building friendships, and keeping friendships. So our text is Philippians 2, uh, verses, actually 3 to 20-something or other, and uh, that's okay. Follow along as I read, as best you can, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human likeness or form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Now skipping on to verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. All right, preach play with me. Pray with me. We'll play later. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together tonight. And uh, we pray now that you would sharpen our minds uh, by the work of your Spirit and uh, help us understand what you're saying. Soften our hearts that uh, you might press these things into reality in our lives. Help us to see you, Lord Jesus. Uh, Help us to prize you and to know uh, what it is that you think of us as well. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I read recently of a man in Canada who uh, makes a habit out of sticking notes that he's written into bottles and throwing them into the ocean. Uh, these are, you know, clicheous things that we write songs about or make movies about. But he does it regularly, to the tune of 200 a week. And he's received back uh, something like 3,500 replies from all over the world. And um, it's very interesting. He, he never plans on stopping. He's in his 60s. He's been doing this for 20 years. And um, what's interesting, what's really interesting to me, is that he never includes his phone number because he doesn't want people to call. So he calls these people friends that uh, respond, all 3,800 of them. And he likes to receive letters from them, of course, and, and uh, Christmas cards. But he doesn't actually want to talk to them. And I find it an intriguing analogy that, uh, and this is sort of true of us too, uh, we're really good at collecting friends. Whatever that means. But we want it on our terms. Uh, We're really good at pursuing folks, sort of. But we want friendship on our terms. And uh, what we're going to see tonight is uh, our biggest problem isn't making friends. It isn't developing friendships. It's not keeping friends. It's that we're not good friends. That in the end, we're not good friends because we're uh, blighted or stained by selfishness. That's what we're going to see in our text We're going to see that uh, because selfishness, and our search for significance and other things, but mainly selfishness, ruins our friendships. And I'll have to argue with some of you that this actually happens to you. um, That we have to learn from Jesus. We have to learn friendship from Jesus. So because selfishness ruins our friendships, we have to learn friendship from Jesus. And and some of you, of course, are thinking, this doesn't apply to me. I'm a great friend. I have lots of friends. And some of you are thinking, it doesn't apply to me because I don't have any friends. Um, I'm going to make the argument that uh, this is a reality for all of us and that almost none of us are asking the question, am I a good friend? And we should. So first we're going to talk about how selfishness ruins our friendships. And then we're going to talk about how Jesus redeems them. And uh, early in our text, and it's not up there, it's in verse 3, but it's pretty simple and clear, you'll get it. And I'll read it again. In verse 3, Paul writes, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit and humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, early in this verse, we see what ruins friendships. The first thing that ruins friendships is self-service. The word he uses is rivalry, and, and the word rivalry ha- actually means Selfish ambition you're thinking, selfish ambition, has that equal rivalry? Well, this is one of the translator's ideas. It's, if you are marked by selfish ambition, you by nature are at war with others. Selfish ambition is that which says, I have a right to stake my claim. I have to find my honor. I have to make my place. I have to carry out my agenda. I've got a plan for my life. It's a good one because I'm awesome. I've got to mark out my territory. And if you're in my way, which everyone is, you need to get out of the way. It is by nature competitive. Selfish... Selfish ambition, self-service, is by nature competitive. This is the nature of pride. This is why prideful people drive us crazy. It's because we're prideful. And it bothers us. You have no right to be so arrogant and prideful. Don't you know that I'm better than you? That's what most of our response to other people's pride is. Why don't you get in your place, which is behind me? Uh, So self-service is almost always at the expense of other folks. We're trying to push them aside. So that we can take the place that we think we deserve. Uh, One of our better thinkers of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, wrote that other vices uh, may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness. These are all good things. You can have a good time with drunks. Drunk folks can have a great time together. Unchaste folks can have a good time together. Pride always brings enmity. Put a bunch of proud people in the room it will dissolve into a, a verbal bloodbath as people try to mark their territory. Pride by nature is enmity. And, and it's worse because we don't even see it. Uh, our selfishness is marked by self-service, but it's also marked by self-deceit. And in verse 3, uh, Paul writes, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. And the word conceit there, again, is more complex than just the word conceit. It actually means vain conceit. This is conceit that has no rational foundation. This is empty glory. This is uh, hot air. This is boasting that has no grounds. Uh, a good example of this is uh, the incredible Mr. Toad. Anybody familiar with the incredible Mr. Toad? Uh, from Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows. Uh, Mr. Toad is an extraordinary guy. He's a millionaire. He also steals a car, gets thrown in jail, breaks out, hijacks a train, and so forth. But what he's really known for is his songs. He sings wonderful songs about himself. I'll read you one. Uh, This one won't make me cry, I promise. Uh, The world has great heroes, as history books have showed, but never a name to go down to fame compared to Mr. Toad. The clever men at Oxford know all that there is known, but they know none of them, one half as much as intelligent Mr. Toad. The animals sat in the ark and cried. Their tears and torrents flowed. Who was it that said, there's land ahead? It was the encouraging Mr. Toad. The army all saluted as they marched along the road. Was it the king or Kitchener? No, it was Mr. Toad. The queen and her ladies in waiting sat at the window and sewed. She cried, look, who's that handsome man? They answered, Mr. Toad. So this is what Mr. Toad does. He sings wonderful songs about himself. And you're thinking... Well, that's utterly ridiculous. Uh, And and perhaps we're not marked by the same kind of vanity, and yet we are. We're just far more subtle about it. Uh, Another one of my favorite writers, uh, Annie Dillard, who's a local, uh, she's from Squirrel Hill, she writes in her book, An American Childhood, uh, the following phrase, and I think she nails us. The interior life, that is the life inside your head that no one sees or hears, thank goodness, that interior life is often stupid. Its egoism blinds it and deafens it. Its imagination spins out ignorant tales, fascinated. It fancies the western wind blows on the self. Leaves fall at the feet of the self for a reason. And people are watching. A mind risks real ignorance for the sometimes paltry prize of an imagination enriched. The trick of your reason is to get your imagination to seize the actual world, if only from time to time. What he's saying is our minds are really good at convincing us that we're the center of the world. That we're the center of the world. And as you walk throughout your day, if you can just take a moment and take a half step out and look at the way you're thinking about things, you realize you are acting like you're the center of the world. That everything happens for a reason. If you don't believe me, then you, know, you get stuck at a crosswalk when you have to go somewhere, you're late, you get stuck at a traffic light, and all the world is at fault. Everything is wrong. Like you're the center of the world. Um, all of us are marked by this kind of vain conceit. Um, and here I have to pick on you a little bit, and I'm sorry. But I'm a pastor and it's my job. Uh, Your generation, perhaps, uh, has suffered like none other in recent history from this. And it's not necessarily your fault. Uh, I think it's probably more likely the fault of your educators, your psychologists and psychiatrists of the previous generation, my generation and my parents' generation. They set out to protect you. They set out to make sure your gentle self-esteem wasn't harmed. And so some of you grew up playing in athletic leagues, where there was no loser, no one ever came in last. Everyone did well. You know, it's it's captured pretty well in the uh, in the movie The Incredibles, where the little kid says, "If everyone's excellent, then no one's excellent. We're all just mediocre." And uh, in an effort to protect you uh, from finding out that you're not as awesome as you think you are, it's produced a narcissistic generation. Uh, your generation's been called Generation Me. I am not picking on you. Uh, It's just what people have seen. And uh, you didn't need that help because by nature we're all deeply marked by this. We just helped you along even further. And uh, and the reality is, uh, are you any more narcissistic than others? Maybe just a little bit. Uh, But deep down, in spite of all that you've been told that you're awesome, that you can do everything, you're still marked by deep insecurity because you know that you're not as awesome as everyone thinks you are. At any moment, everyone else that's around you that's keeping up their facade is going to find the cracks in yours and see what you really are. Now, some of you really do think you're awesome. You're Mr. (coughs) Toad. Reality will put you in your place eventually. But others are deeply concerned and living in fear that you'll be discovered. So we're marked by self-service. We're marked by self-deceit. And uh, our our account here gives us a means of self-diagnosis to see just how bad a case of this that we have. And what we have here is three tests that help us to see how our selfishness ruins our friendships. In verse 3, Paul says, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This is the antidote to self-conceit. The self-conceit that says, I'm the center of the universe, I'm the baddest thing that ever lived, I'm amazing. Uh, Paul says, I want you to consider other people more significant than you. More weighty, more honorable, more important. That's what I want you to do. In humility, assume a place of humility... Consider everyone else better and more significant than you. That's hard. That is an antidote to conceit. So a few ways of teasing out whether or not you're anywhere near this, or even striving for this, is uh, how jealous are you? How envious are you of other people's achievements or gifts or skills? And uh, you know, some of us, we tend to be pretty good at hiding this. Another way of asking how jealous are you is when you see someone's gifts or skills or talents is your first reaction to make an excuse for you're not as awesome as they are. Something along the lines of, well, if I'd gone to his school, or if my parents were as rich as her parents were, then it wouldn't be like that. I think we very often make excuses for our inferiority um, because we don't want to give people their proper due. Some people are just better at us than other things, and it's okay. It's Okay. Uh, number two, can you look out for the interests of others? Paul says in verse four, he calls the Philippians, let each of you look not only to the, your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the antidote to your selfish ambition, which is looking out for number one. Everyone get out of my way, i got to plan an agenda. And Paul says, put that aside, look out for other people's interests instead of your own. So are you willing to sacrifice time and energy and resources to help others, to advance their agenda? You Do not have time for other people? Do you have needy friends? Not friends that are just helping you achieve your agenda, but friends that are a mess and demand time from you. And how do you respond to those needy friends? Do you begrudge them their need and the time restraints they put on you? Are you genuinely concerned for the welfare of your friends? Genuinely concerned. And now that you're willing to cross them, to say hard thanks to them, to warn them, to potentially risk the relationship because you care about them more than you care about what you're getting out of the relationship. Do you put the interests of others ahead of your own interests? So that's the second test. And the last one is uh, a strange one, but it's in the text. and I'm going to bring it up. And it's uh, down in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. You complain a lot. Maybe be thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Because it's the nature of selfish pride to not only set it itself against others, but even against God. And if you're complaining, what you're basically saying is, God, you're not being a good enough friend to me. I deserve better. I've got this plan, this agenda. agenda. I'm pretty significant. I've done what I'm supposed to be. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I am who I'm supposed to be. You need to carry through and do your end of the bargain, God. And if you complain against a God that's good and is for you, how do you treat your friends? Do you complain about your friends? Maybe not openly, but do you grovel? Are you bitter? Do you complain about them? Well, it's not necessarily just our behavior that's the problem. It's our heart. And um, our heart is made, we are made to seek significance and security. But we, we look, uh, we're, we're vainglorious because we, we're we're made to do something significant. Uh, we're seeking security because uh, we don't have it and we need it. We, we need to feel loved. We're made for a relationship with God and with others that worked well, and they don't, so we're always looking for security. And so we're looking for significance. We want to be recognized. We're looking for security. And as creatures, we will try to get those by any means possible. Uh, some of you are striving to make a name for yourselves um, you're the perpetual overachiever that never does enough you're never good enough for yourself you're, you're striking, you're striving for significance for uh, some honored status that everyone will recognize how awesome you are because deep down uh, you're not convinced that you're good at all uh, some of you are desperately looking for security you want someone to love you and make a safe place for you Uh, Perhaps you didn't have it growing up, and you're desperately looking for it now. And your heart is made in such a way that you will desperately seek to have those needs met. So much so that you're willing to manipulate others to get it. That's what this is really about. The selfishness comes in in that you are willing... I hate to say this about you. I say it about me, too. I'm in this. We all do this. We're willing to manipulate and use others to meet our needs for significance or for security. We do it all the time. Uh, some of you, perhaps, uh, and are in friendships in which you feel like one of your friends isn't doing their job. And so you complain. You nag. Perhaps you guilt manipulate in order to uh, force them to respond as they should. You're not doing your job very well. I thought you were supposed to be a good friend of mine. Where have you been? You're forcing them to perform because you desperately need them to meet your need for significance or security. And some of you, and this tends to be the the guy's response, uh, respond by retreating. This is too dangerous. I know I'm insecure. And uh, I now see that I'm not performing very well. So what I'm going to do now is go and hide and protect myself from your manipulation. I'm going to go and ball up in a little ball over here. You can leave me alone. Which at the same time is a means of manipulating the other person. I'm going to withdraw. We're safe. And if you care about me at all, you'll come and get me. We're really good... At manipulating each other. We do it naturally. We've been doing it since we we're infants. You're thinking, I don't really do this. We all do this, and we do it so easily. My three year old's a master of it already. We don't teach them these things, it just happens. So uh, you either manipulate people, and if that doesn't work, uh, perhaps you just drop them. This relationship's not working. Uh, I can find better friends that will, and we won't say this, but we're thinking, I can find better friends that will meet my needs, that will be faithful. And follow through and give me what I'm looking for. The problem isn't just our behavior, but it's our heart. Our hearts are selfish. And Paul says what we need is humility. Uh, The problem is none of us want that. And it doesn't come natural. Uh, This is one of those strange Christian virtues that's in no other virtue list in the ancient world. Uh, Humility. Uh, Where do we find it? And uh, as we consider how Jesus redeems friendships, we see that we're called to consider Jesus and his humility. Humility. Uh, we see it first in his attitude. In verse 6, we read that Jesus, um, excuse me, uh, let's start with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, Jesus has an attitude of humility in a sense that, uh, unlike us, he had real glory. At one time, we were quite glorious, the way we were created. But we're, we're, we're basically messes. Uh, Jesus shared all the glory of the Father. Uh, Christian theology and the scriptures tell us, um, if you believe this thing, that uh, Jesus dwelt with the Father for all eternity in a relationship of mutual intimacy and deep love. That he shared all the glory of the Father. And that of his own good volition, uh, he chose to abandon that glory and come and inhabit this mess. It's an attitude of humility. He could have come as a majestic king, demanding people just ship up, uh, get in shape, get on board. Uh, You've got 24 hours to clean your act up. Uh, He didn't do that. Instead, he came, as we see, as a servant. Uh, Jesus displays an attitude of humility in the way he comes. And he does so by his actions as well. He takes the form of a servant. He willingly dies a criminal's death. And, uh, again, our scriptures tell us that Jesus didn't go to the cross as a, as a criminal. He didn't go to the cross as a tragic miscarriage of justice, although it was that. Uh, but in the end, he went willingly. He uh, actually pursued the cross. Uh, Luke tells us he set his face to Jerusalem like flint. He knew the fate had awaited us there, him there. And he, he went uh, willingly uh, because he had an, an agenda, which was Our good. Jesus, uh, in all his glory and all his goodness, considered us significant enough to die for us, to pursue death. He abandoned the security he had with the Father, gave it up, gave himself into the hands of ruthless men, that we might be brought into a place of security with the Father. He goes to the cross uh, in the most humiliating form of death imaginable. Crucifixion was an unspeakable atrocity. Cicero, uh, the Roman rhetorician, classical writer, speechmaker, uh, just a brilliant, well-respected man of the day, said that the cross was such a humiliating, atrocious thing that it shouldn't even be mentioned in society. It was widely practiced, but it shouldn't even be mentioned. That's how, how gross and atrocious and humiliating it was. And yet, here we have the Son of God willing to go there uh, because he loves his people. And so Jesus, in his humility, pursues the cross for people like us. Um, And we see these in verses 9 and 10 and 11 of chapter 2. He goes from humility to exaltation. And this is significant for us. Uh, We have one that suffered for us to bring us close to the Father. And, And the testimony of Scripture is that now Jesus, having suffered, now reigns in power. That he, having considered you significant, and loving you well, uh, now watches out for you from a position of authority. He has the ability to watch out for you. In other words, if you're looking for security, uh, this is a good place to start. A God that loves you enough to die for you, but is in control. And is it still at work? We read in verse 13, that this God works in us uh, to make us like Jesus. And in the heart of this is, I'm going to put all these things together now, Uh because Jesus died for us and showed us what humility looks like, we can now have what I'm going to call an unassailable inner peace, an unassailable inter, inner place of security. Uh, Jesus offers us true significance. We strive for it. We kill ourselves for it. We go hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for it. I'm not saying you shouldn't go hundreds of thousands dollars in debt. That's a different discussion. Um... But we'll do do lots of things to make a name for ourselves. Uh, Jesus has done far greater things. He willingly suffered a humiliating death because he considered you significant enough to die. And um, because of that, we no longer have to prove ourselves. Go do awesome things. I don't care. Go do great things. That's wonderful. But you don't have to prove yourself to God. And security. Jesus offers you security. Security. So often we live in fear that we're going to be discovered. That someone's going to see what we're really like. That people are really going to know the sins and the thoughts, all the grievous, disgusting stuff that goes through our hearts and minds. Even that we do, Jesus knows all of it already, if you're his child. And he died for it. That's security. He died to cover all your guilt and shame and he loves you. And he's in control. He's in power. Reigning at God's right hand watching out for you. That is security. When you put those two things together, and you take it in deep, uh, what you have is an unassailable, inner, safe place of security that allows you to go and serve others. So I'm going to read again from C.S. Lewis. Um, He writes, I can't even read what I wrote. Uh, He wants, God wants you to know Him. He wants to give you Himself. And He and you are two of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with God, you will, in fact, be humble. You will be delightedly humble, which I think is a good uh, counter to what we typically think about humility, which is some kind of miserable state. You will feel the infinite relief of having once for all got rid of all your silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. If I had got a little bit further along with humility myself, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort, taking the fancy dress off getting rid of the false self with all of its look at me and aren't I a good boy, all its posing and posturing. To get near to this humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Humility, friends, is the ability uh, to rest secure and that God loves you perfectly, has counted you significant, and has you in a place of security. You can rest in that. And when you can rest in that, you're able to move from a posture of manipulation to ministry. You use people and manipulate people in relationships to get what you want because you feel like you're an open chasm of want and need. When you recognize Jesus has done everything that you need, and in him you have a vast resource of love, security, and significance, you're set free. You're set free to forget about yourself. Because God has you. God loves you. And you can minister to others uh, freely. You can put others first. Uh, it's, it's amazing what Paul writes about Timothy here. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. And here he puts two things together. Jesus' welfare and yours. Timothy's doing two things. He's seeking the welfare of Jesus and others. And it's the same thing because Jesus is concerned about his people. And when you understand what Jesus has done for you, and you take this message in deep, you'll find that inner unassailable place that will allow you to minister to others, to seek their good, without regard for what it's going to do to you or diminish you. Let me sum things up real quick. I think we're all desperately longing for relationships, meaningful friendships. A lot of us don't know how to do it, how to go about it. Some of us have bunches of friends, and it's great. Um, it'd be an interesting question to ask you, just how many of them know how much about you? How many of them are you really secure with? How many of them really know you well? How many, how many of them do you think really love you? Are you safe uh, letting them know you? We long to be known, and yet we're scared to death of it. We really are. We really want meaningful friendships, but it's hard for us to, uh, to find them. And what I want to tell you tonight is uh, pursue them, but in the end it, they don't just happen. You just don't sit around and passively wait for some friendship to catch you. I think that's all the way we think about it. 'm just going to fall into a friendship. You're set free to pursue people. You're set free to minister to them. To love them. I, uh, I counted this story a couple years ago. It's of a couple of guys and another RUF and uh, I heard it five, six years ago and I've remembered it ever since. Some of you have heard it, but uh, at that RUF, um, which was pretty well established, there were three or four guys. They were the cool seniors that everyone wanted to hang out with. I mean, they probably smoked pipes and maybe drank too much. I don't know what it meant, but they were cool guys. Actually, they were very mature. Uh, they loved others. Well, they were good looking, they were bright. And, um, into their fellowship, which is a significantly sized group, entered the most awkward kid ever, uh, barely socially functioning. Um, the kind of kid that by mere association with him, like if you were to walk down the street with him, people would think less of you. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and these three guys decided we're going to, we're going to pursue this guy in friendship. Uh, and not as some token act of pity, but we're actually going to pursue him. So, uh, they do. They, they go out and go shopping with the guy. Uh, teach him what kind of clothes to wear so that, uh, you know, let's, let's help with the self awareness thing here. Let's, lear, let's learn some grooming tips, some basic self care. And, and again, it wasn't a charity case. They actually love this guy. And I remember this story from years ago, and I just, I just emailed the campus pastor, and he's like, Yeah, they love that guy well. They're still friends. So they became real friends. That's the point. Uh, they became real friends, and that's that's that kind of thing is possible when um, you understand what Jesus has done for you, that you're free to forget yourself and and to pursue others uh, without all your self interest and your self conceit, that you can love others well. So I'd like you to consider how Jesus has come to you, what He's done for you, how He's given you security, how He's given you significance. And as you take that message in and believe it, it will transform you. And it will transform the way you relate to others. It really will. Let's pray together.